about if I just start at the beginning? <laughs> you can you can be honest. Because <laughs> you know what? They have the sweat equity that went into that memory that they're making with their friends and family. And that's what's important with this, and that's what the I Am Real World's about. Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the best things about a spring food plot is you get a second chance if it fails. Chasing Giants with Don Higgins, brought to you by buyafarm.com, your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. By tapping into Don's years of experience, dedication, and commitment, Chasing Giants focuses on the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Now, here is Don and co-host Terry Peer. Welcome, everybody, to Chasing Giants, episode 17. I'm sitting in Don's shed with a live studio audience, and this is a little weird. We got quite a crowd around us tonight, Terry. They've been taunting us for about the last half hour about how they're going to stump us, and I'm not sure about this. We'll see how many of them have the guts to get up and ask a question, though. So for the listeners out there, we're sitting here with a bunch of tables set up. I'm getting a lot of weird grins from people. (laughs) And we got a microphone set up, so tonight's platform is a little bit different. They're going to get up in front of everybody and introduce themselves. I guess if they don't want to, they don't have to, but they're going to ask us a question and put us on the spot. Yep, and uh, I don't know how this is going to go. We're gonna we're gonna see. We're gonna find out. And just so everybody listening knows, we're at uh, my first whitetail master course of the spring um, here on my home farm. We got about I don't know approximately twenty guys here this evening. Uh, tomorrow we'll be doing the class and and touring the farm, as well as another farm a few miles away. So uh, tonight we're doing this live recording of the podcast and hopefully people have got some questions yep and and i I do have to note that we do have the infamous west ducks in the audience today yeah uh he became really famous after that last podcast uh you know i (laughs) (laughs) i will admit now now, we got to clarify this we poke a lot of fun at him a lot of times and it, it all started with the joke about him, we, us putting him on a billboard on I-70 just east of Terre Haute. Oh. And he still doesn't believe me that it's actually there. Not I many people know he's an underwear model. So, uh, but yeah, we poked a little fun about his tree saddle. But, you know, he did, <laughs> he did quickly learn when we hooked him up with a lone wolf tree stand last year, last year that that went by the wayside really quick. And he well. shot... Hey, at the end of the day, he shot a bigger buck than both of us. Uh, that's so, exactly where I was going, and he was, but he wasn't in a tree saddle when he did it. He was in a lone wolf tree stand. So I guess he would take us picking at him every year if he shoots a bigger buck than we do every year. He's shaking his head. He says no problem. Well, let's put him on the spot and make him ask the All first right, question. So Wes, Wes, you get the first question to try to to try to uh, stump us here. He's walking up to the microphone. Do a quick sound check there for me, buddy. Check, check, check. There he is. <laughs> In all of his glory. Yeah, you're good. So, Don, if uh, I'm looking for a property to buy, just from an aerial perspective, what would what characteristics from an aerial perspective do you look for for an ideal property to purchase? And you can talk about leasing, too. Purchase or lease. Great question. Um, I like a property that's isolated. It, it sets by itself rather than connects to a lot of other cover. I think when it connects to other pieces of cover, uh, you're kind of at the mercy of your neighbors, um, especially if you've got neighbors that uh, are a little bit unscrupulous and want to set the line, things like that. Uh, the deer can't recognize a property line, so what goes on right across the fence affects you a whole lot more. Now, if you've got a property that sits uh, almost like an island, um, you know, in a sea of ag or whatever, it seems to uh, be a whole lot better. Um, you, you can do a whole lot more with it. You know, you can grow bucks and, and move them on to older age classes um, a whole lot easier. Um, so, so that's the first thing I look for. The other thing is access. Um, where's your access points and what direction do you get to access that property? Um, you know, if your access is uh, from the north, for example, you know, which is good for south winds, but it's not so good for north winds. Or if your only access is from the west, uh, that's not real good for westerly winds. So 
multiple access points are great, but if you've only got one access, which direction it's from is pretty important. Also want to see a, a good mixture of uh, both open fields and wooded or brushy cover. Uh, 50-50 mix is ideal. But uh, the big thing is that it sets out by itself, isolated away from, from other cover. Yeah, it's good. It's a good question. Yep. I mean, we've, we've talked about it on a couple past episodes that even I used to look at a property and say, oh, look at all the connecting woods. Right. You know, and that connecting woods might be nine hunters hunting within 100 yards of the property line. So. I've always had my best success on properties that are isolated. Um, I know i got a couple of friends here that have helped me drag out more than one buck, and and they'll tell you that when they co- come to help me drag out a buck, it's usually an isolated patch. It might be just a draw or a fence row out in the middle of nowhere. Um, it, it's usually not a big track that's connected to a lot of other cover. All right. That's a good question. Who's got another one? Somebody's got to make their way up there. Yeah. We'll start calling out names if we somebody need a, don't we step need a, up to the, no, the yeah, we need a <laughs> we need an on-deck circle here. Yeah, I'm Jason Burner. I live up in uh, northwest Indiana, but you kind of expanding on the access point. Uh, how much do you think the deer really care about vehicles driving up and down fields? I, mean, I know some places I hunt, to get in, you really got to drive halfway through the field to get in there. And I mean, in the mornings, nighttime, you, you see them running, you, you're spooking them, you know you're getting in and out of there, but do you think that really impacts them long-term, or is that more just a short-term impact well I, I can tell you for absolute certain i can think of two examples real quick here where deer on two different properties have learned to recognize my truck sitting along a road and uh, if the truck's moving down the road it doesn't seem to bother them but a parked vehicle on the road they come out of the woods and they can look across the field it's almost like they've they've connected the dots and they know when that truck's there i'm there and i'm somewhere i shouldn't be so um, I, I think the traffic itself, you know, the moving vehicle, I mean, you talk to a farmer, and if he's on a tractor, and he'll, he'll see deer, you know, at close range as, as he's working a field or whatever, but stop that tractor or stop that combine and see how tight that deer sits because he gets up and busts out of there. So I think the moving traffic is not near as big a deal as where you park your vehicle. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but uh, – well, we even so. saw it on this property with your four-wheeler. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's that's why you actually went and looked for the quiet cat to begin with is so they would – I mean, we would set – you guys will see this blind tomorrow when we walk around the farm. Uh, these deer, if they came out on one side of us, they'd look straight over, and if his four-wheeler was there, they'd go right back in the switchgrass or they'd blow out over yeah. the field. They'll flare their tails and start blowing and snorting and stomping at that four-wheeler, and, I mean, it's over. I mean, they're telling every deer on the property that something's up. So, uh, yeah, it works with ATVs just as well as it does with trucks or other vehicles. So, just one more question on top of that. Is it better – I've always heard the theory that it's better to blow a deer out with a truck or a moving vehicle than it is walking out through a field. And, you know, the year Kyle Harmon shot uh, Kick It In Sun, I believe – he was having, I think, his grandpa come in and blow the deer out with a truck to pick him up to take him out instead of him walking out and blowing him out. So, yep, I think he documented that story pretty well on Team Radicals page. Well, several years ago when I shot my biggest buck, the 214, um, I had a friend drive me in in a truck, and we actually put a stand up. We left the truck running, the doors open, the radio as loud as it goes. We put this stand up. He drove away and left me there two hours later, this 214-inch buck's 20 yards from me. So uh, if they can locate where you're at, a lot of times if they feel safe, they'll hold tight. I mean, you really got to step on their tail to to bust them out of there most of the time. Um, But a a human on foot is a whole lot more pressure than a vehicle is. Yeah, Patrick and I were talking this morning coming up about the quiet cat. You said that you've actually seen deer stay in the field as you've driven by on that just because it's a moving object that I don't know if it's that they haven't learned it yet or or what the deal is with it. I think that's what it is. They look at you like, what in the world is this thing? (laughs) They see a guy riding a bicycle across a cornfield, (laughs) and they they almost (laughs) don't know what it is. Um, They don't spook like they would on an ATV. I know that. Yeah. Good question. Yep. Next up, somebody's got to (laughs) go. Here we got one. I'm Mike. Um, I'm a new property owner, and one of the things that concerned me the most was not 
messing the property up. There's tons of information about what people think you should do. Tons of info that what people think you should do, but not a lot about mistakes that could be made. And that was my biggest concern. (laughs) Where do I start? (laughs) That's a good one. In fact, I was just saying earlier to someone that, uh, you know, there is so much misinformation on the Internet. It's almost the Internet is the misinformation highway. It's not the information highway. It's the misinformation highway. And. And it seems like that uh, somebody puts something out there and, and people just buy into it and then they promote it. And before you know it, you've got the the entire deer hunting, you know, community believing something that's that's not accurate whatsoever. Um, and I actually just wrote a blog about it. The last blog I posted uh, probably in the last week. Um, the best advice I can give you is take a look at, at, at who's offering your advice or the advice you're reading, and has that person actually accomplished what you're setting out to accomplish? Um, you know, there's a lot of guys that have never shot a mature buck that are giving information on how to – and charging people for the information on, on how to do it. Well, I, I mean, you wouldn't take your car and let somebody work on the brakes to somebody that's never worked on car brakes before. Uh, you wouldn't let somebody perform surgery, a doctor perform surgery on you if he's never done it before, but yet people will spend thousands of dollars to, for somebody to tell them how to deer hunt when they, the person they're paying has never done it successfully. So, you know, I just encourage you, and I'm not going to get into slamming anybody in particular or, or even endorsing anybody in particular, but there's a lot of good, good uh, knowledgeable authors and uh figures in the hunting industry that are putting out good information but there's also plenty of them that uh, the information is not so good so I, I would look at the source as much as I would the information if it's somebody that's been successful then uh, their information has been validated I mean it's there's people in this industry that own food plot companies that aren't hunters you know there's 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 businesses that are out there to make money and people out there to make money and that's at any cost so you have to align whatever you're trying to look at purchasing or who you're trying to learn from is is have they accomplished like don said what uh what i'm trying to do so i heard a other story this week about this this lady who was trying to teach their daughter how to cook a roast and they cut the ends off the roast the young girl said well why do you cut the ends off the roast she goes i don't know that's how my mom taught me to do it so she was persistent like most kids and said, well, I want to know, is it about seasoning or is it about cutting fat off or whatever? So they got on the phone and called the, gr- the girl's grandmother and says, why do you cut the ends of the roast off? She said, I don't know, but that's how my mother taught. And her great-grandmother was still alive, so they called her and said, well, why did you cut the end of the roast off? And said, to fit in the pot. <laughs> so, I yeah. mean, you know, we get in this habit of doing it because we've always done it or because somebody said to do it, but it's not – for any good reason Mm -hmm. it's just it's just misinformation that somebody's put out there that now all of a sudden because they're a keyboard you know expert that that it's taken as gospel you got to be really careful yep absolutely we got another guy coming to the mic guy antonacci from connecticut i've got the uh a two-part question um, the first would be, uh, Don, you just came out to my farm a couple weeks ago and we talked about putting up a couple of box blinds on uh, a couple of the different parcels. How important is it going to be to, like you hear all this talk about, oh, you got to brush your blind in, you can't see it from so far away, you're this or that. How important um, is that going to be? Um, it's not important whatsoever. And you're going to see tomorrow some of the blinds on my place stand out like a sore thumb. Uh, but what is important is that they are, are put up well in advance of hunting season so the deer get used to them. It's no different than an old piece of farm machinery or something that, that's set out there for years. The deer get used to it. So, you know, I try to brush mine in more for entrance and, and getting out of it yeah, so they don't exactly. see it. Yep. Yep. But one year, uh, three years ago, I used a uh, hay bale blind and – Instead of dropping the windows and showing black, I put the windows in backwards so that it was always black, so it always looked the same. 
and we sell the hay off our farm and the farmer got really mad because I went around with black paint and painted windows on every single round bale in the field that year. <laughs> so they would all look the same. I don't know if it made any difference or not, but he wasn't real happy I crylined up his hay bales. But uh, Then the other question was we talked about uh, logging different uh, chunks of the woods for uh, to make sanctuaries and stuff. Um, you hear a lot of people talk about hinge cutting and the advantages to that. Uh, we did not talk about that. We were just talking about taking the uh, trees, cutting them, taking the timber out, and leaving the tops. Um, so, what's your what's? Why didn't we talk about that? I'm not a big fan of hinge cutting. Um, I think as land managers, we should be the best stewards we can be of the resource that we've been entrusted with for a period of time. Uh, we're going to be leaving, no matter who we are, we're not going to live forever. We're going to be leaving our properties to someone else down the road. Hinge cutting, does it, it, you keep the tree alive. I mean, if that tree is so worthless that you're going to hinge cut it, why not kill it and let a better tree either take its place or clear space for a better tree around it uh, to grow faster? Um, you know, hinge cutting just basically takes a, a worthless plant and, and keeps it alive. And, and even when you drop it, then you're taking even more ground space, you know, after you hinge cut it. I, I would much rather, and we're going to see tomorrow what, what I've done in, in my sanctuary in the last week. I've probably spent 20 hours with a chainsaw um, just dropping trees. Um, there's not a hinge cut tree back there. I, I think that's a much better approach. Um, you know, I've got two grandsons that are probably going to end up with this farm one day. Uh, so I, I was selectively cut uh, the trees that are never going to have timber or wildlife value um, while leaving the the better trees, better branching structure, better species, uh, the ones that are going to have timber value and also value for wildlife. Um, yeah, I just think, uh, you know, we got a lot of guys running around out there with chainsaws every winter, hinge cutting their properties, and most of these guys don't know an oak from a maple, let alone a red oak from a white oak. So, uh, you know, I just think that we can be better stewards of the resource than what hinge cutting is. So when I drop a tree, just completely cut it off and let it fall as structure versus hinge cut a tree, and, yeah, it might it might stay alive and have foliage on it. Does that structure matter to a deer whether it is a dead tree laying there or – a living tree laying there. It doesn't make any difference on thermal cover in the winter because there's nothing growing. Mm -hmm. But it's it's it seems like to me I'd rather have a better protein and uh, feed value food plot next to it and not rely. I mean, if the only benefit is so that it has green leaves so the deer can browse, I don't want them browsing in, in that thicket bedding area anyway. I want them coming out mm -hmm. to a food plot where I can put a strategy together to kill it, right? Exactly, and that's the that's really the biggest benefit of hinge cutting is that tree stays alive, but it gets them branches down on the ground where the deer can browse the ends of them, and that's not totally a bad thing. But you know, I would rather drop that tree, and what that tree top will laying on the ground will do, it'll actually protect a new tree, a new seedling that grows up there it, amongst that tree top. It's protected from browsing deer. Um, you know, there's areas of the country where white oaks are basically becoming almost extinct because the deer they're so slow to grow as seedlings that the deer are browsing them off and they don't have a chance to get established and that's where leaving these treetops and these fallen trees on the ground a, a white oak seedling can start amongst that treetop and by the time it, it comes out of that top and that top's deteriorated well it's already above the the uh, browse level where the deer can reach it but if it's me i don't want food choices in the bedding area Oh, I, agree I, I want that, them coming but, somewhere else mm -hmm. where I got a shot. I got a shot at them instead of being in there, right? And the thing of it is, when you you're going in and doing these cuts, you want as much sunlight to hit the ground. It's that that second growth or you know that regeneration um, that provides the thick bedding cover. And if you hinge cut a tree, well, it's still shading the ground under that fallen tree, and I, and I want the sunlight to hit the ground. Yeah, and, and this all this this whole plan that they're going to see tomorrow when we walk around the property that that started in your head when we shed hunted that last year after mm -hmm. a master class everybody left and we had a few of us here and we needed to burn one of the switchgrass fields and then we shed hunted it after after church I think on Sunday and you walked in there and you were just uh, uh, you were almost sick about how open it was that there was not any mm -hmm. structure 
And that's well, I think you made up your mind that day. I did, and there there was a lot of deer that had wintered in there, and you know they had browsed everything within reach, and it was just a, a really distinct browse line. You could line. see a long way inside that woods. You could see clear through it, and uh, I made up my mind that before when the next winter rolled around, I was going to get in there and and drop a bunch of those trees and create some more ground cover. And the fallen tree, even when it's dead, is is good bedding structure. The deer will relate to it and bed right up against those fallen treetops. And the other wildlife too, not just the yep. deer. Yep. All right. Everybody's moving all at once, fighting over the microphone. This is going to be a good one. We've got a legend coming to the mic, gentlemen. This, be, I, this, I need a. This need man a, is my mentor. Infamous. I'm step Alan up, Foster. step up a little bit closer. <laughs> so step up a little bit closer, they can hear you. I'm Alan Foster. Uh, my question is, Don, with all your consultations all over the country this year, last year, in the past. What does that impress upon you, the differences you see in terrain and cover and how people take care of stuff and just the cool things that you've noticed from doing all your traveling that you wouldn't have if you just stayed here all the time? I think the biggest thing I take away is how adaptable the whitetail is. Um, you know, I was just at Guy's property, actually two properties, one in Massachusetts, um, one in Connecticut. I was in New York. Um I've been to Iowa, Kansas, and uh, the terrain varies some, but but those deer are so adaptable. It doesn't matter where you at, you're at. There's going to be whitetails there. You can be in the middle of a city even, and if there's enough cover, there's going to be some whitetails there. So th- that's probably one of the bigger things. The other thing that's really interesting to me is that the people that I get to meet, because the, the whitetail passion just seems to have gripped. A wide variety of different people and that's you know the best thing that i've said this before but the best thing that whitetail deer ever did for me was the people that i've met because of the, of deer hunting um just great people everywhere i go um they seem to roll out the red carpet and treat me like a king and um just real appreciative of that and it's the people more than anything that uh, that i really appreciate about deer hunting that the people that's brought into my life What's the oddest thing you've seen this year so far? Well, I might have to think about that a little bit. Uh, it might be on Guy's property. We we came across this old uh, shack, I guess, for lack of a better word, that I actually put it on my social media. Oh, the fireplace. Yeah, yeah this, this fireplace. building was no more than about 8 foot wide by maybe 10 or 12 at the most feet long. And at one end, it had this brick fireplace that went clear to the ground. I mean... It was like a fireplace that would heat a building the size that we're in here, and it's in this little bitty room. And then on the other side of the, that same cabin was this bed. You know, it wasn't even a twin-sized bed. It was a small bed, and I just – it was really neat to see that. I wish them walls could talk because I'd like to hear the stories of what went on in that, that old shack out in the middle of the woods. <laughs> I got to think that the one that I've seen was the uh, stand in the TV tower in Michigan. That, that was that was pretty interesting, too. That was <laughs> – Back in December, I <laughs> everybody's went. laughing. Everybody must see it. Must have saw it on your Instagram page. Yeah. Back in December, I went on a uh, uh, consulting trip to Michigan and was at several properties there. And there was one particular property where the guy right behind his barn, he had these TV towers that were all bolted together, and and this thing was way up in the air. I'm talking way up there. And at the top of it, the guy's got a TV or he's got a tree stand attached to this thing. <laughs> And I'm like, good grief, do you ever get up there? And he's like, yeah, I go up there and I can watch my whole farm. And I said, do you have any idea how high it is? He says, yeah, 68 feet. <laughs> He'd actually measured it. 68 feet in the air on his With TV. no harness. With no harness. <laughs> this guy gets up there and sits. <laughs> good grief, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. I don't, or one of them. I don't know that I've seen anything like that before. Yeah. I had no doubt he could see his whole farm and probably the whole county from – 68 feet in the air all right let's take one more question somebody somebody ask a quick question here before we go to the uh to the buy farm segment who's got one here we go hi my name is clayton i'm from about an hour and a half south of here actually um <clears throat> my question is i think when you hunted trump i think you said you hunted that stand nine times and didn't see a deer 
I hunted that that uh, property nine times. I had three different stands that were fairly close together, but they were f- basically for three different wind directions. But uh, they were real. I mean that that area I hunted it nine times before I ever saw Trump. Okay. Um, did you did you know he was there by trail cameras? That buck, um, I'd really put some effort in the year before. Um, he had exploded the summer before and probably put on 30, 35 inches from what he had been uh, the, the previous summer. And he, he became a buck I wanted to kill. I mean, when he got up to that 190-plus range. Uh, so, But I didn't have – I knew where he spent his summers um, because I would get his, his picture in velvet. I went back through my – database of my trail camera pictures and i had several pictures of him in previous summers but i did not have a picture of him in hard horn so i knew that he relocated about the time he shed velvet uh, but i had no idea where he relocated to so that first fall i was basically just putting cameras out anywhere you know the surrounding where i knew he summered uh, just in hopes of putting pieces of the puzzle together to where he went um what I discovered, uh, going back through the trail camera history, the year I shot him, he was seven and a half. So I'd been watching him since he was two and a half. Um, never realized how big he was going to get, um, but I had that history to go back on. And, um, you know, I knew that where he summered at, he, he, I figured out that he didn't leave there until those crops were harvested on that one particular property. So I knew that my best chance to kill him was there before the crops were harvested, and that's why I just kept plugging away because those crops were always the last crops in that area to be harvested. So, um, you know, once they got harvested, it was like it was wide open. It was it was an ag prairie then. Um, so I knew my best chance was to just keep plugging away right there until those crops were harvested, and at that point I knew he was going to move on. So, So you weren't? going there on trail camera pictures necessarily like uh, that he was going past your trail camera every oh no okay no I guess. um I, I just knew that uh you know i i got his his picture at eight different locations uh the previous hunting season um and i had permission on a handful of other properties um, but I figured if I started jumping around to those other properties, I was probably always going to be one step behind that buck. And I did something that I almost never do, and that's just, I just kept pounding away at the same couple of stands. Um, well, but there, there's more to the story, though, because at the same time, he was waiting for the perfect condition here on this farm to hunt Smokey, mm-hmm. right? So right. he... he Smokey was the homebody, and I just cringed when he would get on podcast and say, I got a 95% chance of killing this deer, and I'm, don't say that, don't say that. But, um, you know, he was waiting for just the right time to go in, and he only hunted that buck here twice, and they saw him both times, but he killed him on the second. So there was there was three or four of us on a group text that we would get text at night, well, my seventh hunt without seeing an animal you know, he was over there, and how far did how far was Trump going from? You got his picture within so many hours, like miles mm-hmm. apart, where he was his range was going back and forth. Yeah, that that buck had absolutely no pattern. He just showed up, you know, here, there, and everywhere at any hour of the day, or or mainly at night. Um, but at one point, I got two pictures. Those pictures were taken seventeen hours apart, and they were three miles apart. So in in 17 hours, he moved three miles, and I happened to get his picture at both spots. So he might, who knows how much farther he went than where those cameras were. But uh, he was just a total opposite of Smokey. I mean, he was just a wandering nomad that you never knew where he was going to show up at. You kept hunting him at the same spot even though I, after that? I did because I figured that if I jumped around from property to property, I was always going to be one step behind him, and I knew – and until those crops were harvested at that on that one farm that he was going to be spending some time there and uh, you did get his cell phone picture when you were heading to the taxidermist with Smokey though in the daylight so then uh, I shot Smokey on uh, October 15th Uh, two days later on the 17th um, I was taking Smokey to the taxidermist in the afternoon evening I mean it was still daylight and I was right on this road right outside here and I was down here at the tee and my cell phone went off, and I had a cell camera over where Trump was at. And uh, I 
pulled up the picture and I couldn't believe it. There was Trump walking by my camera in daylight because he'd hardly moved in daylight. Um, so then the, the next day, my grandsons were here from Indiana and I spent the day with them and didn't go hunting. But then the, the following day would have been the 19th. I, w- I went and I hunted one of those stands that the wind was right for. Um, where I got, it wasn't exactly where I got his picture. You know, I was a hundred yards from the camera where the, where the, uh, stand was, but, uh, my goal for the rest of the season was just to lay eyes on that buck. I, my goal wasn't even to kill him. It was like, I, I didn't even think that was possible. I thought, you know, he's such a, a wandering nomad that it's going to be so hard to, to get a shot at him. I, my goal was just to lay eyes on him. And so I'm sitting in that stand and, and he steps out of the standing corn. I'm thinking, well, first hunt since killing uh, Smokey. I've already accomplished my goal for the rest of the season. And then he starts walking towards me and I get a shot at him and the rest is history, as they'd say. But so is there more to your question? Or I, I was just kind of curious, I guess, if you did have pictures of that buck on trail cameras, what's your threshold of <clears throat> you see a big buck having a certain pattern and you're trying to go in there or you're trying to learn his pattern. What's your threshold of going in there too much and bumping him versus not going in there enough and then his pattern has changed and mm-hmm. then you know it's kind of a balance there and, and that's one of the topics we're going to cover in detail tomorrow but you know what i think one of the the biggest mistakes that a lot of deer hunters make is they want to use their trail cameras to um, put together a pattern right then um, they want to go check that camera and okay yesterday he was at this food plot at four o'clock so i'm going to go sit on that food plot tomorrow at four o'clock and there he's going to be I'm using my trail cameras this season to kill bucks next season and the season after. Um, I th- the mature bucks that I've followed have an annual pattern. They're going to show up at the same places basically the same time each year. And uh, I'm trying to pick out that pattern so that I'm not – I'm a step ahead of him. Uh, I think most guys, when they're using their trail cameras, they're a step behind the bucks that they're after. And I try to use that previous year's knowledge gained from trail camera pictures to be a step ahead of that buck and be waiting on him. And that's what I was trying to do with Trump. I knew from all those years, the previous year's history, I knew that buck was going to stay there until them crops were gone. And so I just figured I would just keep pounding it out. And I, I knew he wandered a, a wide uh, range too. So, But I, I reasoned that you know, I didn't want to burn. Typically, you don't want to burn a stand out by overhunting it. Um, but I reasoned that if if he's not there, I'm not burning that stand out. Um, I had good and you access. weren't seeing any deer. It's None. not like you had None. <laughs> 20, 20 does out feeding you that had a chance of winning you. You were going in there and not seeing a squirrel. Right. So it's it's not like it was mm-hmm. in a. You would never have done that on this farm where you have a chance to see twenty deer in a food plot at night. You, no, you would have never hunted that, nope. put that much pressure on that spot. No, it would have burned this place out doing yeah. that. But you know, it was just it was one of them things that I, I I took a different approach with Trump than I'd ever taken with any other buck, and it was all based on trail camera knowledge from previous years. The the picture I got two days uh, ahead of killing him was great, but I was going to be there no matter if I'd have got that picture or not because my whole season was based on laying eyes on Trump from that point forward, and that's where I was going to be to do it until those crops were harvested on that particular farm. One of the projects I have going on that Don kind of helped me formulate the idea behind it is uh, in Kentucky, one of my food plots, I have a nocturnal buck but he comes into the food plot in different ways. And Don's showed me how to go back and, you know, if you log your trail cameras, pictures, and you keep track of them, everybody has a different way to organize them. I've gone back the last two years that I have that picture and going back to the weather service websites and found out what the wind direction was when he accessed that that food plot from the south or from the east and then start charting that. So when I have those conditions, it's that year-to-year pattern I'm trying to learn, especially when you end up having a deer that's not betting on you. That's mm-hmm. that's the tough part. You know, we don't know. You, know, you try to make that figure out where that radius or that circle, and in Trump's case, it was miles away. In Smokey's case, it was mm-hmm. yards away <laughs> probably from where he was. But uh, that year-to-year data is very important. And you can go back and track that, you know, as long as you have the picture with that timestamp on it, 
that's what I'm in process right now. I got a spreadsheet that's so complicated it looks like a P&L statement from a big company, but it's it's all about wind direction and temperature based on that date and finding out where he was and what direction he was coming from. Mm-hmm. Another thing I did with Trump that I never did with another buck was, uh, you know, I keep a database of my trail camera photos, but I created a spreadsheet, you know, where I I logged in every photo I got of him. Um, from pre from the time I first uh, started getting his pictures as a two year old, um, and, and you know I would do the obvious, you know the time, the date, the location, but I'd also note which direction he came from, um, which direction he left, um, any other bucks that were with him, like especially in the the early season when he was in a bachelor group, um, and then I would uh, go to the to the weather, I forget, it's uh, Weather Underground, I think, is yeah. the one where you That's can, the one uh, you have me using right yeah. now. Yeah. So you can go there, and you can plug the date and time in, and it'll tell you right at your location what the wind direction and velocity and everything was. And I logged all that, so then I could go back, and I'm doing actually doing it with another buck right now uh, that I haven't killed yet, but... Um, you know, you, then you can go back and say, okay, you know, it's it's October 5th. I'm ready to go hunting. Where was this buck previously on October 5th? I got a south wind today. Where was he previously th- around this date with the same conditions? And, you know, I, that's how you can really utilize your trail cameras and take them to the next level is when you're you're that detail-oriented with the, the data that you're saving from those cameras. Had you written a magazine article on that topic um, yet? or I haven't yet. Uh, I think I've got one coming out in North American Whitetail. They just assigned me some articles this week, and I'm pretty sure that was one of one them. One of them is going to be that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick break and move on to the BuyFarm.com Property of the Week. BuyAFarm.com is your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. Now, here is Don Higgins with this week's featured property. All right, this week's featured property is actually in Missouri. Um, you listeners that have been following along, most of our properties have been in Illinois, but this one's actually in Missouri. It's 275 acres. It's located 3.6 miles south of Patton Junction, Missouri, along Route 51. Um, this is actually an online auction. The bidding's going on right now, and it ends Tuesday, April 14th. So um, if you're interested, you might want to get on that um, it's in two tracks. The first track is 260 acres. Uh, it's basically been managed as a cattle farm, but uh, lots of opportunities to, um, to make this a hunting property as well. Lots of uh, uh, deer and turkeys on the place right now. Um, so track one's 260 acres. That'd be the main farm. And then uh, there's another 15-acre track, which would make a great building site. I think it's on the other side of, of the road. Um, but those are both um, up for online auction, which ends Tuesday, April 14th. Um, if you're interested in, in viewing the properties, you can call Agent Wayne Keller. Wayne's phone number is 618-407-1679. And Wayne would be glad to uh, to show you this property, and uh, you can put your bid in on it. So do they put bid in via phone? How does how does the how does the auction process work in this case? It's online bidding, so you can get on there and you can see what the current bid is, um, and then you can place your bid. So both both tracks are are bid on separately, or if you win the first one, do you have the rights to the second one, or how's that work? Well, there's actually a track three, which track three is a combination of both track one and two. Gotcha. So if you want both of them, you would bid on track three, and if gotcha. your if your bid is higher than the combination of one and two, you would get it. So so I'm sure that buyafarm.com's website has all that information on it, or give Wayne a call. Um, what was Wayne's number again? Yeah, Wayne's number is six one eight four zero seven one six seven nine. Good deal. Go check it out at buyafarm.com. Um, and uh, Missouri property, so new state. I don't think we have not had a. Nope, this all is our first Illinois one in so far. Missouri, yep. So, all right, well, let's bounce back to uh, you. Got another question from the audience, or do we want to read one from uh, that was submitted from one of the uh, listeners here? Somebody got one, or you want to read one? It doesn't look everybody's, like anybody's, everybody's got looking one. around here. I'm going to read one real quick that was submitted online, but uh, 
if somebody's got one, get up to the mic, and when I get done with this one, uh, we'll answer yeah, your question. We'll be ready well. here. Yeah, okay. The first question, uh, submitted question, is from Ben Sansone from uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, ben says, I hinge cut two ridges, ridged areas on my 130-acre property in the sanctuary area, probably about three acres of area in total. I made it look like a tornado went through there, kind of like Don has suggested. I now plan to stay out of there, but I have noticed it is very thick, almost too thick now to even walk through. I had a hard time walking out when I was done. How thick is too thick? Should I consider cutting corridors, as I have read that deer don't like it too thick because they want escape routes? Thank you, Ben. Great question, and, and you're going to see the answer tomorrow uh, in the area that I just cut. I like to go in after just dropping these trees in any direction, whatever dire direction the tree's leaning, that's the way I drop it. But once I'm done with an area, I like to go in and create a trail from the outside edge, usually right by one of my tree stands, right into the heart of that property. Sometimes I'll just use my skid loader, and I'll just push the fallen trees to the side and uh, to create a trail that comes from the heart of this cut area right out past my tree stand. And what those deer will do, they'll follow that path, and they'll get in there in the cover, and they'll, they'll crawl up under those treetops and stuff just off of the path in bed. But what do they do when it's time to get up in the afternoon? They stand up, they go out to the trail, and they walk right out past your stand. Um, if you don't have access to a skid loader, then you can do the same thing with a chainsaw. Just, you know, start your way in and just cut the sections of trunk out just to make a, a path just big enough to walk through. And you don't have to mow it or anything. Those deer will find it easy enough. Um, so... Ben wants to know how thick is too thick. Um, I don't think that you – I have never seen anything too thick, really, um, as far as an area that's been cut, as long as you, you give them these access routes in and out. There are Internet geniuses out there that even say that you can get a switchgrass field too thick. and That's the biggest bunch of garbage I've ever seen I was, or heard. I was and going to see it tomorrow. I, I, I was going to try to tee Don up on one and get him a little ruffled <laughs> yeah. up, but uh, yeah, but yeah, there's there's actually people that say something's too thick that deer won't use it, and and in your experience, that's not the case. Yeah, I see that about switchgrass all the time online, and and I'm going to show you tomorrow the thickest switchgrass I've ever seen, and it's going to have deer trails all through it as well as beds. So the uh, bottom line is the trail that you're talking about making, whether it's in a with whether it's in a timbered area or whatever, that's just to pattern the deer to go a specific direction close to where your stand is. Even if it's thick, they're going to find a way through it if they want to use it. Am, am I saying that right? Exactly. And I talk about taking a good stand and making it a great stand. Uh, if you've got a stand on the edge of one of these cut areas, well, it, it might already be in a good spot, but you can make it even better by cutting that path into the heart of that down timber and uh, giving those deer the easiest path. They'll follow it for sure so right, the, right past your stand. Right. This summer we were checking trail cameras up here in Illinois together, and there's another way you can do that. Say we're not in timber. Mm-hmm that um, it's real grown up thick. It's talk a little bit about how I can pattern or make that trail a specific direction or spot that it's within bow range. We're going to see this tomorrow in the class as well, but uh, I'll go into an area and uh, with a little pump-up garden sprayer and herbicide, and I'll, I'll just spray a path and kill the vegetation, and the, it'll, the deer will just follow it. Uh, more, than, more than a mode path. That's what we've found. They, they will follow a mode path, uh, no doubt about it. However, there, what I've seen is there's a lot of mature bucks that won't. Um, you know, does and young bucks, they'll follow those mode paths all day long. And if that's what you're happy shooting, by all means, get out there on your tractor and mow a path. But if you're wanting the, the big mature bucks, they want that cover right up against their side. They, they want to feel that, that brush against them. And uh, you just use a garden sprayer and spray a little spot a foot wide and let the weeds grow up around it but it's just enough they'll mow it down to where yep. it's a trail i they mean will. that one picture that we took this summer it was it was interstate going through so you can lead them right past your tree so we got uh mr big buck killer patrick simpson himself up to the microphone <laughs> so i think he's going to sing us a song do you think he brought his tree saddle from last week's episode he probably did <laughs> i've never hunted out of a tree saddle but i do i do have a question i got to think about something a little earlier 
And uh, our part of Kentucky really got socked pretty hard. With EHD, I was pretty fortunate not to lose any any bucks or really any deer on my place because I kind of preventively maintenance that with Charles Mineral and stuff. But uh, it, we haven't had much of a winter. And I was wondering, since we really haven't had any super cold weather, is EHD set up to really get socked hard this year if you're not prepared for it? Because uh, I'm sure we're going to have a lot more insects that make it through the winter than normal. You want to take that one, Terry? Or? Well, I mean, you talk you talk to the last last week. Patrick asked the question about the crimper, and I think that's what got us on the tree saddle topic is uh, the gimmicks. Yep. And and you made a statement about go back and look at what the old farmers are doing or the farmers are doing. The farmers always talk about insects the following year after you don't have hard freezes are always bad. So how does that relate to a midge net and eggs and all of that stuff? Uh, you're more qualified on that. But I do know that even going back to my grandpa, the, he would always talk about the years after a winter that wasn't, you know, you had more ticks, you had more um, other insects that were you had to deal with with crops the following year. Well, and I'm not sure how that's going to play out. You know, I, I don't know that uh, that I'm qualified to answer that. I, I I do know, you know, that in a drier year, I think the weather uh, next summer is is probably more key than what it was this winter. Um, you know, when it gets dry and the water sources dry up and and uh, deer that muds what, that 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 just damp mud from where everything dries up is is what really kills us. Right. That, that's where the midge gnat lays its eggs, and then you got limited water sources, so all the deer are coming to these limited water sources, and that dried mud around the edge is where those midge gnats are, are laying their eggs. And, and the best thing we can have is an early frost yep. to kill them. Mm-hmm. So, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's unfortunate different areas in Kentucky. I think Missouri and Iowa both all got hit hard this year, and, uh, I mean, it's uh, unfortunately there's a lot of – bad data out there when it comes to you know we've we've talked about this a lot recently um with the um kind of misinterpretation of cwd versus ehd and you know we got these blinders on right now trying to throw stabs at cwd when we're completely losing 80 percent of deer herd you know southeast indiana our buddies dave and jp who didn't get to make it up this week you know i think they ended up probably losing 75 percent of the deer in their area mm-hmm. while some biologist is 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 worried about what could happen and in the meantime they're losing their entire herd so it's it's unfortunate yeah um ehd is definitely an issue and it just seems to slowly be working its way farther and farther north um states that never had seen ehd a few years ago wisconsin for example michigan um, in, in the last 10 years or so, EHD has pushed up that far north, and it just seems to be, be going a little farther north all the time. And we'll be publishing quite a bit more educational stuff on Expect Healthy Deer Technology and, um, you know, different ways to get consumption up for the states that allow it. And, and I got a test going on right now in Kentucky where uh, where we're doing some different things to try to just absolutely get them the consumption rate up, mm-hmm. um, but different ways to just get that additive in them to make them as healthy as possible to give them a shot at, shot at surviving. Right. So good question. And it didn't spin into a tree saddle. No, love, it didn't. Love swing conversation. Right. <laughs> Will expect healthy deer technology cure the coronavirus? If it Boy, does, we're millionaires, people. <laughs> <laughs> we just reduced the price of it online. Yeah. We might need to rethink that. So, yeah. uh, uh, and, and all joking aside, we actually talked about making a little spoof uh, media post on it, and I, I kind of shied away from it. It's it's a very serious topic for us, and a lot of lives and people's finances are being affected by it so we don't want to make light of what's going on but uh but uh it it does it does help ehd i can't speak for coronavirus so all right we need a couple more questions here before we wrap this uh this show up i haven't been put on the spot too awful bad i was i was more worried than i should have been i guess but he's got a weird look on his face here 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 comes the legend i gotta tell a story about this guy 
He's, you um, gotta get closer to the mic so everybody, all the listeners can hear us. So. I was talking to a DNR guy on one of the, my deliveries and stuff uh, not too long ago, and we were talking about what you said about losing your big bucks last spring. Yep. and didn't know what happened to them, and he felt that they may have had some uh, of the the virus or EHD last spring because the conditions were similar last spring to right. what they normally are in the fall. Mm-hmm. Your bucks have already shed. Everybody's out of the woods after turkey season, so they decompose before anybody even knows they're gone. And he said he knows that over on the Wabash and over in those areas, they had a pretty good buck kill in the spring. So that may be, I mean, usually you hear of it in the fall, but if you turkey hunted the last couple of weeks here, the buffalo gnats and stuff, I mean, they popped out. They were horrible. So, and that's at the end of May, middle of May. So... I just wondered if maybe that might have played into it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that a possibility? I mean, I've always heard of that hitting in the fall, but he said the conditions last spring were very similar to what the fall normally is. Just a thought. Uh, I don't know exactly what happened to the Bucks last year, but I know that, that just me personally, uh, I was watching 11 different Bucks over 150 inches in about five or six counties around here. And these are bucks that were alive when they shed their antlers. And in the summer, uh, when it came time to find them in velvet, I put my cameras out about the 1st of July when those racks are growed out enough that I can recognize individual bucks. I put my cameras out the 1st of July in areas where these bucks had always summered in the past, and they were gone. They never showed up again. They were just gone. Um, and talking with others, in fact, this topic just came up earlier this week when I picked my two deer heads up from my taxidermist, Eric Kibler. Um, he, he was saying the same thing, that, uh, you know, how weird it was that all these bucks that uh, people were keeping an eye on um, from the previous season just disappeared and were not there last season. Um, they weren't there in velvet last summer. So sometime, something happened between the time the bucks shed their antlers and say the first of July, um, where a lot of, of bigger mature bucks died. And I heard it, I wrote a blog on it last summer when I first noticed it. And that was the first I'd seen written about it. But it was like people were coming out of the woodwork telling me I seen the very same thing. I've, I've got all, you know, three bucks that disappeared, or I got five bucks that disappeared, and I can't find them. And they've never showed back up, and they've always been there every year. Something happened last year, and it very well might have been a, a, a freak EHD outbreak in the spring or something. Yeah, it could have been. One of the other things you've written about was potentially like a respiratory or pneumonia because of how it was mm-hmm. like it was like cold and damp, and you know, like in like cattle, that's that's the worst thing you can have. You either want it freezing or dry. Right. You know, you can't just have constant. They they get mm-hmm. fluid buildup. So that was that was one of the other theories you've written about. We'll probably never know the answer, but uh, something definitely killed a lot of mature bucks about this time last year. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right, we got time for one or two more. Come on. Up here he comes. He said he had like fifteen. I don't. I don't know why he sat down. If you want, you can just stay at the mic. We'll get into some of those tomorrow too. But uh, (laughs) you mentioned earlier some of your kind of ideal properties and stuff. uh, Different, uh, you know, isolation timber. Uh, grasslands, things like that. What about water when it comes into some of that? I know you've made some of your own artificial water sources, uh, natural versus artificial. What are some pros and cons? I feel that's a, that's one of those things that the internet has kind of uh, ran with. I, I, in this part of the Midwest, I don't think water is that big of an issue. Now, um, I was in a, a place in uh, Wisconsin a couple weeks ago um, and I know a friend of mine, Art Healing, up there, you know, he just swears by these water holes. And what it is up there is it's really mountainous almost along the bluff country, not far from the Mississippi River. And these up on these tall ridges, all the water's in the bottom. You know, the streams and such are in the bottoms. And up on these tall ridges, there is no water. And that's where they're putting the water holes and having really good luck hunting over these water holes up on the tops of these ridges. Um, the areas that I've hunted, I, I don't think water's an issue, and I think on most properties, guys that are putting in water holes are, are probably doing more harm to their property than good. They're going in there. Human intrusion is the thing that ruins more properties than anything. And, you know, they're doing all these little projects, and in the process, they're running more deer out than they're ever attracting to, their, to whatever their project may be. 
So I just don't see water as being a limiting factor for most of the Midwest. I go back to your checkerboard analogy. And and that's one of the things that kind of sets you apart different. His his plan that he has for here, he knows that might not work in Wisconsin or in Texas, right? But when you look at the aerial view of your uh, area and one box of your checkerboard is your property, what can I do on that uh, box to differentiate it from every other square on that checkerboard? If that would be that that's the only water that they would have on that entire checkerboard, that might be a different story. Absolutely. Right? But if there's a if there's creeks running everywhere through that whole checkerboard, you know, what are you really accomplishing other than pushing deer out and making a mosquito factory? So I think it's I think you just have to step back for a second and say, How can I differentiate my square from uh from everywhere else? I see a youngster in here. I bet I bet he's got a question for Grandpa. Hey, Walker. Walker just walked in. <laughs> Is he going to be shy, or will he ask Grandpa? Hey, he's question? probably not going to ask any questions. Uh, okay. Yep. Go ahead. Right. We got time. We got another one coming up. I'll just throw out there that uh, this we've got guys coming in from seven states to uh, this course tomorrow. So, uh, hope you guys all left the coronavirus behind. and uh, Fist bumps and elbow pads for everybody. Yeah. Ray, Northeast Ohio. Uh, why did you name Trump Trump instead of Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> well, well, that's... <laughs> Man, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> uh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, before, you ask, before you answer that question... So what people don't know is he had a doe that, what do you call the condition where their tongue hangs way down? I forget what you call it, but this this doe's tongue like literally hang out, hung out of her mouth. And he named her Hillary. And he was speaking at a, at a charity event. And I'm like, you cannot get up in front of everybody and start talking about this. Yeah. But uh, he did. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that, that's a true story. I was at Terry's church, and uh, Terry says, I don't care what you say, but you cannot say Obama sucks. So, <laughs> he did. I, <laughs> It was I, I, <laughs> it was a calling from it was a sign. The, uh, the projector locked up, and he was yeah. in limbo, and he resorted to Obama sucks. Yeah, I said, you know, I came here with only one rule. Terry told me I cannot say Obama sucks, so I'm not going to say Obama sucks tonight. <laughs> well, now I just offended half our listeners, and I'll go yeah, back well, and answer your question. That's all right. <laughs> Trump, um, in, in 2016, the year of uh, – the election year when Trump got elected that that summer before the election, you know, when things were heating up between Trump and Hillary, I was a big Trump supporter from the time that guy came down the escalator at Trump towers. I was on board. We needed somebody besides a politician. And, uh, you know, I, I probably should have named him Hillary since I was wanting to kill him, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) but, uh, no, I was just such a Trump fan, you know, our nightmare for me. Uh, my my goal was actually <laughs> to kill that buck on election day. Yeah, I killed the buck named Trump on the same day that Trump gets elected. That was that was my goal, but See, it didn't work y- out that you way. All, you all cannot even appreciate how much effort I had to put into Don giving him scripted statements that he was allowed to make on social media if he shot this buck. I mean, I, I pre-wrote them so he could just cut and paste it. It had to be, it had to say, it couldn't say, I just shot Trump. I'm like, you are going to have FBI people at your house if you post that. You have to say, I, I just shot a buck that I nicknamed Trump. Or, you know, I mean, it, he had like six versions of what he was allowed to say and what he, and he didn't listen to any of it. But I was like, dude, you, you post that you just shot Trump. You're going to have an FBI agent sitting out front you know, knocking on your door. So Terry came to us, uh, that real world as our marketing director about, uh, I don't know how many years you've been with us. I don't know, five, I guess. Probably five years ago. And, uh, he had his work cut out for him at the beginning. <laughs> I mean, I was, uh, <laughs> I, I, my politics were not secret whatsoever. Were they Terry? So it's all right uh, though. I, uh, I, hey, the beauty of a podcast is we can say what we want. We don't have to worry about it here. That's right. Um, so, but, you know, I just so he did have a he did have a doe named Hillary, 
that stuck her tongue out all the time. But um, but yeah, that's the reason. That's the reason uh, Trump got his name. But I was really, really concerned that he was going to make a Facebook post that says I just shot Trump and end up in jail somewhere. So. Looks like we got another question from Mr. Tree Saddle himself, Wes Delks. I don't know about that nickname, but in a tree saddle with a ghillie suit. I want to see it tomorrow. <laughs> so, Don, you've been hunting for 40-plus years, and you've seen a lot of changes um, in that time. Looking at the next, I mean, speaking to younger hunters, 40 years from now, forecast what changes do you see and what it changes will it take to be successful and what i mean does somebody need to do differently to be a big buck killer uh with a career hunting ahead of them wow that's a tough one um you know i I have seen a lot of changes uh there's so many things i carry to the field today that didn't even exist when i started um there's there's a lot of, of good changes and plenty that I don't like. Um, and I'm not sure I like the direction the hunting industry is going. I think that it's going to get to the point where hunting is going to become a rich man's sport. Either you own land or, or you're paying high dollar for a lease or you're not hunting. Um, and then everybody else is going to get shoved off to onto public land and, and that's going to be so over hunted. It's going to be a waste of time. And I think it's just going to become the percentage of, of the population that hunts is just going to become smaller and smaller. And um, I, I'm not sure that I like that. Um, it is what it is. You know, I, when I started out, I was as poor as anybody. Um, deer hunting was, was my escape. All I needed to, to buy was a $5 license and, and you know, a, a weapon that didn't even cost $100 at that time. And I was set, and I could go, you know, around the neighborhood, and I, I could knock on ten doors and get permission to hunt from nine of those ten people. But there's three deer on those entire farms, though. Well, that's that true. was a little bit different back then, though. But I think I would, I would trade the deer numbers we have today for the freedom I had to go about anywhere I wanted back then. Um, today, I'd knock on ten doors, I'd get turned down ten times, and. Uh, Probably nine of them wouldn't be so nice. So Land's uh, definitely the biggest thing. It is, yeah. You um, know, the consumer behavior person in me will say that from a, from a buying cycle or purchasing decision, our society now wants the quick fix. Not, not gimmick isn't the right word, but give me the one tool, whatever it costs, it's going to give me instant satisfaction. You know, what's what's going to let me go buy something to automatically kill booners every year? I think that we've lost a little bit about, you know, you want to be a trophy buck hunter, learn how to kill a deer first before you learn how to mm-hmm. kill, you know, a 200-inch buck. You know, these these people are starting to get into our sport and going straight to what Don's doing, and it's impossible. But they think that they're going to do it because they go and buy some gimmick product that's going to align all the stars correctly. And they may do it once, but they're not going to consistently do it. But as time goes on, even in my career, I've seen to where our, our, our hunters want to buy the one bow or the one thing that's going to allow them to kill a monster buck. And it's, it's a lot of learning. It's, I think mm-hmm. it's more knowledge than anything. Well, I, I was blessed when I, to grow up in the time when I did. Um, I'll tell a little story about a guy that's sitting here tonight that he I'm sure he's not even going to say anything to brag about himself, but, you know, Alan Foster asked a couple of questions this evening at the mic. Uh, I met him when I was about an 18-year-old kid, and uh, he was older than me, and he was doing what I dreamed of doing. He was shooting big bucks on a consistent basis. and So that, that first summer when I met him, you know, I spent every break. We worked at the same place, so... When I would get a break on the job, I'd run and talk to Al, and and uh, his, you know, his stories or whatever. They always had a a strong ethical overtone, if you will. He, he's one of the most ethical sportsmen I ever met. He would uh, he, he was so ethical. I'm talking 40 years ago, or almost 40 years ago. Um, he, he was so ethical that he would not even use dough and heat scent because he thought that was taking advantage of a buck's number one defense. Um, 
he, he gave up hunting a few years ago. I mean, he, he would probably have a fit today with, you know, these sin elimination products and things. I mean, here's a guy that would refuse to, to even use a, a deer scent. And, um, you know, I, I was just blessed to grow up in a, in a time and to have people like Al come into my life and, and still, you know, strong hunting ethics. And I think that's what's missing today. And I, I think 40 years from now, it'll probably be even worse. So, um, you know, I, I don't know what the next 40 years brings. I'm kind of a little bit afraid of what it brings, but uh, um, buy land. If you want to hunt in the future, you need to buy some land. Well, the, the industry overall is shrinking. The mm. number of incoming hunters is is, is down. But, um, you know, it's it's a lot of that, I think, is what you said. I think it's access to property is the biggest thing. Right. All right. Well, I think that wraps up. Do you get one, anything else to no, say? No, I closing? don't. I see pizza coming in the back door and about 20 hungry guys here. We better wrap it up. All right. Well, let's uh, let's sign off from Don's master class. we got a full day ahead of us tomorrow um, going and touring. How many properties are we going to tomorrow? Uh, we're just going to look at two tomorrow. Going to two different ones yep. tomorrow. So why don't you take us out? All right. We want to thank our sponsors, Biofarm, 360 Hunting Blinds, Quiet Cat, Real World Wildlife Products, Vortex, Lone Wolf, and Matthews. We'll see you in a couple weeks at episode 18.